Welcome back to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and each week we focus on city, state, and national politics and bring you conversations with the newsmakers and newsbreakers, the influencers and advocates, and the experts that shape our policies. And speaking of experts, I'm joined as always by the expert journalist and all-around great person, Celeste Katz-Marston. Celeste, how are you today? Happy as always to be here on the radio with you, Jeff. I look forward to this every week. It's our time together, and we get to share it with the wonderful WBAI audience each week. Absolutely, and certainly a lot going on. I know that you are always checking out the news every single minute. I was just looking at this breaking story, which came down uh, within the hour, I think, uh, about about an hour ago, uh, about the former president, Donald Trump, that he's going to have to answer questions under oath uh, in this uh, civil investigation being run in New York State into his business practices, and not only him, but his uh, two eldest children, Don Jr. and Ivanka, Jeff. Yeah, in fact, it's funny because you and I didn't get a chance to chat before the show. And that was the story that I also called out because that was breaking news. That's a big development. It's going to be interesting to see how our attorney general uh, handles this uh, or, well, I'll say, and former potential gubernatorial candidate. Exactly. Right? Letitia That's James, either potential. way. Right. <laughs> and this is this is something this is not something that is in the distant future. They're talking about uh, depositions happening within 21 days. Very big deal. So it'll be interesting to see how they react to this. I think they're going to try to appeal. Apparently, they're not talking about it just yet, or at least not to the uh, to the wire services. But it will be interesting to see how they react and whether anybody tries to take the fifth on this and uh, avoid potential self-incrimination. You know, and I'm hoping that it appears that this uh, these depositions happen on a Thursday, so we'll be able to bring you the latest on driving forces here on WBAI when that happens. Obviously, depositions won't be in public, but we will be uh, following that as much as possible and bringing you the latest. Maybe we can get some experts on as well to talk about what how they felt this would actually go. It's really going to be interesting to see how Donald Trump handles something like this. That's the first time we've said his name actually on air in a while. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting that uh, the whole lifestyle, the culture of doing a live radio program, especially talk radio, has really changed. It's been very, very different in a lot of ways, not just because of the pandemic, but because of the change in leadership, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, what, the other thing we've been following, by the way, is what's been going on with the Supreme Court. I mean, we're getting into that season where we're going to be seeing a lot more decisions coming down in the next few months from the Supreme Court. But one of the really interesting developments that took place uh, this week, uh, this was overnight, we learned about this, the Supreme Court took the unusual step yesterday of reporting that it would consider a renewed request from teachers in New York City to block a vaccine mandate because of their religious objections. This was an interesting development, Celeste, because just recently, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who has jurisdiction over the lower courts here in New York, had denied that request, Celeste. 
Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And we're seeing this happening as we do see a decrease in the number of cases associated with the Omicron variant. You are seeing more and more coverage, more and more discussion of certain municipalities, at least maybe dropping or easing uh, vaccine proof requirements, if not requirements of vaccination, of mask mandates maybe coming up or being loosened in schools, in public places. Uh, you know, are we turning in the corner here, which would be great, but are we just turning another corner because I feel like we've seen this movie before, Jeff, the spike and then the the decrease. And, you know, I'm really not into the sequel that much. I'm kind of done with this series, but I'm not sure we've seen the end of it. Not at all. You know, and in fact, that's kind of getting to the theme of today's show, which will be education. One thing I was actually looking at yesterday in advance of this show, uh, Celeste, was the mayor's preliminary budget plan. I know you used to follow this intimately every time uh, that these things would happen. And if I recall, there was a colleague of yours who used to wear even a special vest on these days uh, whenever the mayor would announce, you know, a budget plan. Uh, maybe he's listening and going crazy. Maybe, you know, we didn't say his name. Don't worry. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, wa- I watched that closely. Education was not really touched on in the mayor's public remarks, but, you know, in his announcement about a $98.5 billion budget, the mayor talked about a number of of cuts, how he had a program to eliminate the gap, which called for cuts to most city agencies largely uh, that would eliminate a, pro- a projected shortfall. Um, and then certain details have come to light in the last 24 hours about how this preliminary budget plan, I make sure I say preliminary, will impact different agencies or not like the NYPD or yes, like the Department of Education, where they're not going to be able to staff up uh, school safety agents. But uh, one thing I do want to bring up was after the uh, mayor, and we'll talk about this throughout the show. One thing the mayor uh, that happened after the mayor made his announcement was the head of the teachers union had uh, made a point of saying that this is good budget news and it gives the Adams administration a unique opportunity to improve services to students from building new career pathways to lowering class size, which of course brings us to today's topic, Celeste. Right. And we are talking generally today about what is going on in our public school system. And of course, that includes how COVID continues to impact the education that our kids are receiving. Governor Hochul this week confirmed that in just a couple of weeks, she expects to reevaluate mask requirements in schools, something we were talking about just a moment ago, potentially could even lift that mandate. But she's also making clear that despite her position that the state should follow this data centric approach, that there's no magic number that she's going to use to to make this decision. Uh, some parents have sued over the mask policy, saying the state doesn't have the authority to enact one and that it's gone on for too long. Uh, state Supreme Court also uh, getting involved here, uh, you know, ruling, stays, so on. So lots going on here and a lot up in the air, Jeff. Yeah. And in fact, you know, we've been following a lot of the developments on a, an education platform we follow called Chalkbeat New York. Um, what's interesting is they reported a few weeks ago about how New York, the New York City school enrollment had declined, uh, declines accelerated during the pandemic. But they noted that those losses were not distributed equally across schools or demographic groups. Uh, you know, and, and later on in the show, we'll give you some figures on that because I know we want to get to our first guest, Celeste. 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's just head there right now because I think this is going to be a great conversation. Our first guest today is Amy Zimmer, the the excuse me the the bureau chief. I lost it there with my excitement for Chalkbeat New York. She's an award winning journalist who previously covered education for the New York news site DNA Info. Uh, her writings appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Metro, and City Limits, among others. Her team at Chalkbeat closely follows education issues in our city. And Chalkbeat also, by the way, covers education nationally and has bureaus across the country. So Amy Zimmer, pleasure to have you here on Driving Forces. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So maybe just to get started, tell people a little bit more about Chalkbeat and how is it different from the education coverage we might see in any sort of general readership uh, publication? Sure. I mean, we focus exclusively on schools. So, you know, I think we do a lot of, of deep dives and that's what we pride ourselves on. And we focus uh, in New York City, we focus namely on early childhood education and K-12 schools. And we often also focus on issues related to equity. Amy, it's great to have you on the show, and I'm really happy because in the second half, folks, we have the school's chancellor, David Banks, who's going to join us. But you did a very insightful piece, and that's why I was so happy to be able to have you on the show today. This piece uh, last week showcased recommendations from New Yorkers on what the city's new school's chancellor should take on as he seeks to reshape the city's public school system. So let's just jump right in. Your your headline on the article uh, asked, uh, read, We Asked, You Answered. So talk a little about what you found. What was the type of feedback that you got from New Yorkers? Sure. So first of all, people have a lot to say, and they want to share their ideas, and they want to be heard. And it was nice to be able to give readers uh, a bit of a platform to, to share their thoughts. And we saw some things. So some of our readers are parents, some are educators, some are both. And with this first question, though, we did see some differences between parents and educators. And for the parents, there were some polarizing themes that typically come up, right, about, for instance, gifted and talented programs and specialized high school admissions tests. So there were people on both sides of that debate, many calling for the continuation of those programs and then many calling for the elimination of them. It seemed like there was one school in particular, Nest Plus M on the Lower East Side. I think they had a campaign to write in because a lot of parents wrote to us. They were concerned about the elimination of GNT and what that would mean for their school since it's all GNT kids. And then uh, just generally admissions came up, the process, the selective screens, the confusion. That's a problem, especially now. It's admission season. And other concerns among parents were... Uh, lack of support for students with disabilities. We heard a lot about that. And then for educators, we heard more about learning loss or whatever you want to call it. That's somewhat controversial to call it that. But a lot of teachers are concerned that many of their students seem behind, like several years behind. And that is understandable given that kids were in and out of classrooms for the past two years. So there's that. And then uh, educators also talked about testing, that there's too much of it. Right now, there are a lot of assessments being given in schools, and some educators were very frustrated by that. And then also people talked about staff diversity and wanting to see more diversity among educators. So uh, Amy, I, 
Amy, I wanted to ask you a question because, you know, I, I, it's very interesting to do this at any time, but particularly to solicit people's opinions about how things are going or what a new chancellor should focus on right in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you know, I'm just curious, was... Uh, most or much of what you heard back focused on the pandemic, or did you feel like there were more sort of uh, fundamental, uh, evergreen type of issues that people were, were really focused on when they thought about the new chancellor? Well, you know, the the GNT, the specialized high school, I mean, those are sort of evergreen fights, but uh, there were also a lot of people writing in about wanting remote learning to continue, right? That's obviously pandemic related. And we also heard a lot of people talking about the need for more psychologists, more social workers, and just mental health support in general, which probably was a need before, but it's obviously been exacerbated by the pandemic. So there was that too. And uh, just curious, in terms of the structure of how you did this, did people just choose topics, uh, you know, for people who may not have, have had a chance to see the story? Did people select from a, a predetermined list of topics? Was this uh, totally right in? And did they share their experiences beyond just saying that, you know, this is subject A or subject Z that I'm concerned with? It was totally open ended. We just asked two questions. So and let people write as much or as little as they wanted. Um, so it was it was open-ended. We didn't give people any prompts or anything like that other than the two questions. One being, you know, talking about their particular school and then just priorities that they wanted the chancellor to focus on this year. You know, what's so, so interesting, another one that came up, Amy, is we had... For the priorities, one thing that we heard from parents and educators here a lot is, class size. Um, that was a really popular one. And as you may know, there was a city council bill to reduce class size that came up at the end of the year, but it, it didn't end up going anywhere. And in fact, that's where I was going, because I know that, you know, here in Queens, where I live, overcrowding has always been an issue ever since I first arrived in New York. Uh, quite some time ago that, you know, when more students were learning in trailers in a number of schools, and it's always been a common theme and connected with class size, about how many students can you fit in a class be, or will, you know, can they uh, appropriately put uh, in a classroom or are they going to have to create new spaces? How often did overcrowding come up in this or did it come up at all or was it just in the context of class size? It came up more in the context of class size. There were some people, actually uh, one student, for instance, who was just concerned about squeezing in a lot of schools into one building. Um, but, you know, I think also in the context of the pandemic, it came up that people were concerned about too many kids in the classroom. Um, but you're right. It was something that we, we've been hearing for years, and I feel like um, overcrowding and the, all those temperature, temporary trailers definitely got a lot of attention in the past as well. You're listening to Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're speaking to Amy Zimmer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat New York. And Amy, let's just uh, pause for a minute because I think it's really important that people were talking about the need for additional mental health services because there's so much going on. I mean, between the pandemic and fears about uh, getting sick, but also the isolation that was associated with um, homeschooling, the stress that was associated with homeschooling, but then the usual issues like 
growing up and uh, bullying and social media. Uh, did people get more specific about their mental health issues they were concerned with and what they wanted to see to address those concerns? Yeah, I think a lot of teachers have said that they feel that students are just um, detached or have low stamina. We've heard this time and again, especially in the older grades, middle and high school, that uh, teachers are saying their kids are glued to their phones in school. Um, and so you might go into a cafeteria now, and instead of seeing kids talking to each other, they're just sitting there looking at their phone. And that's uh, a common a common thing we've heard. So the, the stamina that kids aren't able to sit still in the younger grades, they're just going, getting up and going to the bathroom a lot because I think when they were home, they probably were able to do that whenever they wanted. Um, so that is a big thing that we've heard. And in terms of the solutions, like I said, I think, you know, people are looking for more counseling support. And even though the education department promised to staff that up, it sounds like it's still not enough. The needs are just are just so much greater. So this this is a very uninformed question. Uh, I'll admit that because I seem to recall a time, just as you were speaking right now, I seem to recall a time when the system was trying to um, stop kids from bringing in phones into their schools. I remember that like local bodegas and pharmacy or pharmacies were setting up spaces for kids to be able to put their phones in until they came out after school. So I guess that has changed over time. They're letting kids have their phones in schools once again, or was that just during the pandemic? No, that changed a few years ago, actually. And oh. part of it, but the change was actually because of the bodega issue, right? Because it was seen as something that affected kids in, in certain neighborhoods disproportionately because the phone ban was more uh, enforced in certain neighborhoods and, you know, like metal detector schools, kids couldn't bring their phones in. And so, yeah, so that changed, that changed pre-pandemic. Ah, oh, got it. Yeah, that um, was the- Yeah. That was news to me. I didn't see that one. So let me just go to an overall story because, you know, the chancellor has not yet shared his overarching vision for how we will reform the quote unquote fundamentally flawed school system. So, so what are some of the insights you've gleaned about how his approach might shape that vision? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I just want to say he took over at a time of crisis, right? He started the first week of January when there was a COVID surge and staffing shortages and kids were absent. Uh, you know, the absenteeism rates were off the charts. And so I think he's taking some time to, to, to figure out what he or when he wants to make his agenda, uh, when he wants to talk about his agenda. Maybe he'll do it after I'm on the show, you guys. Um, but he's, he's talked about certain things that he would like to see changed, right? He wants to rethink how the central DOE operations work. And uh, he's talked about wanting to figure out how to help students with dyslexia. That's something that Mayor Adams has also talked a lot about. And uh, Banks has discussed creating a school for children with dyslexia. But then there are questions about, like, well, what about the rest of the kids in the system? who have dyslexia and won't attend this one school, right? I mean, because it is a, it's a pretty large problem. He's also talked about, in general, overhauling the way literacy is taught in schools. And he's a proponent of phonics-based instruction, which 
the city has moved away from, and many believe that move away from phonics has been detrimental to a lot of kids and how they learn to read. Um, what else? Banks have talked a lot about mentorship and uh, CTE, uh, career technical education programs. And already you're seeing Adams with his announcement of Summary's employment program and staffing that up. Like it's, They're very focused on career readiness, I think. And he has talked about replicating excellence wherever that may be, including charter schools. So we'll see what happens with that. There's a charter school cap, obviously, but we'll see what the support for charter schools is. And then when uh, Banks was at the Eagle Academy Network, right, the network of schools that he, he founded, which serves uh, boys of color, he was at the forefront of culturally responsive education. So it will be interesting to see what he does with that citywide. And uh, just a really sort of very, very macro question, but I'm just curious to to hear this from somebody who's been covering education this deeply for a while. Uh, what do you think uh, parents or people associated with this school system can expect in terms of the difference between uh, Banks as a leader and any of his predecessors? Do you feel like he'll be more open to input, uh, that he's more accustomed to, you know, sort of working independently, following his own vision? Uh, you know, what can people expect as they see this new chancellor come in? That's a really good question. And when he was appointed, he really made a point of saying that he wants family input. He wants to talk to parents. He wants to talk to students. And that, you know, part of his sort of reimagining the system is like working from the ground up. So he's really given lip service to this. And now it remains to be seen what happens. Interestingly, uh, when students in January staged a walkout that was led by students at Brooklyn Tech and Stuyvesant, and that was when you know, they were worried about the COVID cases surging and wanted to go remote for a time. Uh, and after they did that, his team reached out to those teenagers and, to meet with them. So, you know, it does seem like he is following up on that promise. But I also want to point out that on the transition team for the Education Committee, there were four youth co-chairs. And that was the first time I believe that uh, that youth co-chairs existed. So, you know, they are, he does seem to be uh, looking for input from families. And, and when we had done a story uh, previously, and we talked to some parents at the Eagle Academy, they did say that they felt that there was a lot of parent input at the school. So we'll see. So I, I know we've only got about a minute or two left. I want to get very quickly to another story you recently published about, uh, uh, the, how students feel about mask wearing, uh, mask wearing and how it impacts their learning. Briefly, what did you learn from those students? Because I love that you get feedback from the people who are very impacted by this, the students. Totally, totally. So much of the debate focuses on public officials and experts and adults in general. So we, we thought it was important to talk to kids and, their experiences are very nuanced, right? So a lot of kids talked about the drawbacks and the difficulties and the discomfort and the trouble hearing classmates and hearing teachers or being heard. And some of these same kids also said they felt safer to have their mouth and nose covered. And um, that they, you know, one student said that she, at this point, like, would feel naked to not be wearing a mask in the classroom but then on the other hand, another kid said wearing a mask makes him feel less incentivized to go to school. So, you know, 
kids see a lot of different things, but but I think more of the we spoke to more than a dozen kids, and um, a lot of them are are afraid to stop wearing them. They're yeah, very that's... used to it at this point. I I think that that's something I was just talking about this earlier today. So, you know, I think that people can sort of become accustomed to anything. And then at that point, uh, becoming unaccustomed to it is a a different story. But we certainly will be following uh, we'll be following your coverage, especially as we see more and more of the, the new chancellor and as we continue through the pandemic. But Amy Zimmer, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do for Chalkbeat? Sure. You can visit Chalkbeat New York at ny chalkbeat.org. Great. Amy Zimmer, Bureau Chief for Chalkbeat New York. Thank you so much for joining Jeff and me here on Driving Forces today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You know, it's funny as, as she was talking about masks, I was also thinking about as I, I don't know if this has happened with any of our listeners. I'm so used to it now that I've stepped out of the apartment a few times and I walk a few feet in my Something's missing. What did I forget? And then I realized I didn't have the mask on. I'm just used to that now. It's not about like whether it's right or wrong. It's just I'm so used to that. You know, you know, it's like, remember your keys. Remember, to, you know, turn the lights off. And then now it, for me, every time I walk out, it's like I have to have that mask on. That's just me. Yeah, definitely. And I've definitely had that moment when I've, you know, gotten, you know, gotten outside or gotten in the car or whatever it is and been like, oh. Oh my God, how could I have forgotten? But if you think about it, we were conditioned to live our entire lives without it. So being shocked that you may have forgotten it once or twice after a, you know, a couple of years, really not that wacky. Yeah. I, I, I want to also let our listeners know, you know, you might not have been able to participate in this uh, survey that, uh, that Chalkbeat had done, but there is another one. There is actually one that the chancellor announced a few days ago. So you can weigh in and you have this other opportunity at nycschoolsurvey.org, nycschoolsurvey.org. This basically gives you a chance to weigh in on issues that affect the city school system. Uh, these are parent and student surveys. They're, they can be both on paper or online if you fill them out, and they're in various languages. And I was reading up about this. You've got until March 25th to submit the comments. It is apparently designed to support a dialogue between parents, students, members of the school community, and helps school leaders make improvements in their schools and programs. Again, that link is nycschoolsurvey.org. So we're going to take a short break, but do not change that dial. Stay with us because coming up in our second half hour, we will have New York City's new or relatively new schools chancellor, David Banks, joining us. And then if there is some time today, because we want to get the chancellor on a lot of issues today, but if we have some time near the end of the show, we're going to try to open up those phone lines. Don't call now, but write down this number, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. In the meantime... Grab a cup of tea or coffee, settle down, and enjoy some of this music by Supertramp.
can see you in the morning when you go to school. Don't forget your book, you know you gotta learn the golden rule. The teacher tells you stop your playing, get on with your work. And be like Johnny too good, don't you know he never shirks, he's coming along. Super Tramp here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons every week. Today we are focusing on public education in New York City. And uh, pretty recently, about the last 24 hours, a little over that, we did have some positive news come out about the schools. New figures out showing that the last graduating class, class of 2021, achieved a four-year high school graduation rate of 81.2%. That's a bump of 2.4 percentage points from the previous year. Uh, in fact, the four-year graduation rate increased and the dropout rate decreased across the five boroughs, Jeff. Yeah, and also good news amid the pandemic in particular, the dropout rate dropped to 4.8%. That was a small, but still a noteworthy decrease of, decrease of about 1% uh, percentage point from 2020. Still, one thing to look at is how the graduation rates differed among white and non-white students. The last graduating class saw increases in graduation rates for Asian, Black, and Hispanic students. I won't go through all the statistics now, but there were some amazing strides in the four-year graduation rate, as well as a decrease in the dropout rate. Very good news coming out of the school system in the last 24 hours. So that brings us to our next guest today, New York City Schools Chancellor David Banks. Very briefly about him, he was appointed on January 1st, the former president and CEO of the Eagle Academy Foundation and the founding principal of the Eagle Academy for Young Men, the first school in a network of all boys public schools in the city and in Newark. And if you don't know much about him, he's a lifelong New Yorker, born in Brooklyn, 
He attended PS 161 in Brooklyn and Hillcrest High School here in Queens. He first was a school safety officer before becoming a teacher at PS 167. And he went on to become a founding principal at the Bronx School of Law, Government and Justice, and then the Eagle Academy for Young Men. He, as Amy Zimmer noted, he does take the helm of the nation's largest public school system at a very challenging time amid COVID and its testing and mask mandates, uh, a drop in enrollment. And after years of parents, after years of parents and communities complained, they didn't really have a voice in the direction of the system. His vision of education emphasizes a partnership between schools and communities based on the guiding principles of, as Amy mentioned too, academic excellence, leadership, and character development, which he eloquently describes in his 2015 book titled Soar, How Boys Learn, Succeed, and Develop Character, which is worth, Celeste, worth reading or listening to to better understand his guiding principles. Schools Chancellor Banks, welcome to WBAI. Oh, good evening. It's certainly my... Uh... My real pleasure and honor to be with both of you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. As in our previous discussion with uh, Amy Zimmer of Chalkbeat, you know, she noted as well that you basically started your tenure in the middle of a crisis, surging COVID, rate, uh, COVID rates, I mean, potential staff shortages, significant student absences then. You are now a month and a half in. How is it going? <laughs> It's been a whirlwind, I have to tell you. It's been, it's been exhilarating. Um, and what I mean by that is that it has been fraught with challenge, but also uh, it has been so filled with promise and potential uh, that every day has just been um, just a, a, a wonderful ride. When I, when I came in on my very first day, the attendance was 65% across the city. Those are hundreds of thousands of young people that were not in school and the attendance yesterday uh, was close to 89%. We have been trajectory, uh, uh, on a trajectory upward every day since I've been here, and that's in spite of a snowstorm that we had to deal with where lots of people asked us to keep the schools closed, but the mayor and I continue to move forward saying our schools are going to be safe and uh, they're going to be open. And, uh, and so that's been very, very important for us. But it just, it's just been so many issues, so many challenges, but I will tell you, I have visited schools almost every day since I've been here. And I am absolutely just overwhelmed with the phenomenal things that are happening in our schools that I think the general public just is not often aware of enough because I don't think the uh, New York City Public Schools has done a good job of actually promoting the great things that are happening in our schools. Chancellor, thanks so much for being here on the program. We really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, this is a great chance for our listeners to hear more about what you see as your vision for the public school system. Every chancellor, every mayor has an opportunity to sort of you know make their imprint on this vital uh, part of our city. So, how has your you know experience uh, and and your history in education shaped what you would like to see happen in the public schools? Well, I thank you for that question. You know, again, as it was pointed out earlier, I am a product of the New York City public schools from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. I went to public schools, pr- pr- uh, pretty much Brooklyn and Queens. And um, and I had great experiences in school. I liked school. I did well in school. I have two younger brothers who had, uh, you know, also products of the public school system. My, my, mo- my mom and dad. My dad was a uh, New York City police officer, did 27 years 
on the NYPD. And they raised three boys and got us through the New York City school system together. Um, he, and then I became a teacher and, a, and, a, and an assistant principal. And I was a principal for 11 years uh, before leaving and running the Eagle Foundation. I'm a lawyer as well. I went to law school at night in St. John's while I was teaching during the day. And here's what I, in my 30-plus years of all these experiences, I was a school safety officer, for goodness sake, in Brooklyn at Clara Barton High School. Um, here's, what I, here's what I've learned and what I see as a blueprint for the future. We have done a really good job, I think, in our schools of what I call schooling. That's, that's, that's the routine of having kids go to school every day. What we've not done as good a job of is what I think is critical thinking, real educating, helping our young people to understand why do they go to school in the first place. And so for me, the mission of the work of the Department of Education really has to be about putting our young people on a path to uh, career opportunities and economic stability. I want every young person that leaves our school system to walk away with a skill set and, a, uh, and an, empl- an employable skill set where they can come out and get a job or get out, come out and go to college and really put themselves in a path to the middle class. I think that's what taxpayers should demand. I think that's what the school system owes parents and families is to make sure that we're not just handing our young people a, a worthless uh, high school diploma. Uh, they should know how to do some stuff, and, and that's what I'm going to be focused on. And so I've got four pillars that are going to lead us to that. One is we're going to scale, sustain, and restore what works. There's a lot of amazing programs in our schools across the city. I want to make sure that the general public is aware of it, and I want to make sure that our schools get better by sharing the most promising practices across schools. I'm very committed to that. Two, I want to reimagine the school experience for all of our kids. I want our young people to – we should have student government in all of our schools. If we want – if we want our kids to really take part uh, in the American democracy, um, we've got to practice that from kindergarten through the 12th grade. It should be student government. Kids should be debating the issues of the day and be fully aware of what's going on around them. I want to make sure that they're engaged in, in uh, internships, uh, which you know really represent some of the jobs of the future. And there's so many other pieces about a reimagined school experience for kids. So the kids don't say that school is boring and want to drop out of school. We want them to be fully engaged. In order for us to do that, we've got to, we've got to make school much more authentic and much more relevant in the lives of the kids. Third, I want to prioritize wellness, um, and that's teaching kids, you know, how to center themselves, issues of mindfulness, healthy eating, the great outdoors, make New York City our classroom, diversifying experiences for our kids. When we think about all of the hate crimes that continue to happen against the Asian community, the Jewish community, I'm convinced it's because our kids don't know each other. And so I really want to make sure that we're leaning into those spaces. And then finally, um, engaging our parents as true partners. And what that means is that you don't, you, you sh- as a chancellor, you shouldn't create policy and then come out and say to the parents, this is what we're doing, and just want to do a photo out with parents. Parents should be there from the very beginning, helping us to create policy for their children. 
We're speaking to New York City Schools Chancellor David Banks. And Chancellor, I want to ask about something that came up in that uh, chalkbeat discussion, that survey, and it's something that comes up uh, perennially. Uh, but maybe of, of uh, you know, we may have a different perspective on it now, especially given the pandemic, and that's testing. I think some people say that the schools emphasize testing too much, but at the same time, of course, you need to have some way to assess how students are doing, where they need more help, where they need more guidance. Generally, what do you see as the evolution of the use of testing, standardized and otherwise, uh, you know, in the first few years, at least, of your chancellorship? I think not only here in New York, but all across the country, uh, school systems are grappling with this. And it's been heightened because of the experience that our kids have gone through during the pandemic and the sense that we've got to come back and do things a little bit differently in our schools. And in some ways, not just a little differently, maybe dramatically differently. Um, I think there's a place for standardized testing, of course. And that standardized testing is important. But it's not everything. And I think um, we, have, we have given up uh, making sure that our kids have a fully comprehensive learning experience because we've been so focused on standardized tests, standardized testing. And so what does that mean? That means because schools and principals recognize that they're going to be uh, measured purely by how well their kids do on standardized tests, um, that's part of the reason why you, you see less of our students being engaged in music in school, because that's not on the test. That's why you see uh, kids less engaged in the arts and theater and you know, drama and dance. Things that we know from a youth development standpoint help to develop the whole child. But guess what? Dance is not on the test. And so those are the things that become the first things that we sacrifice. Under this chancellorship, I am going to use this bully pulpit to talk about the fact that tests are important, but that we are we are really doing our kids a disservice. And there's a reason why so many of our kids disengage and drop out, because we've just made our schools testing like a testing mill. And we should be doing so much better by really helping them, helping them to fully understand what a great education should really be all about. And that's, and that's about developing empathy um, towards one another. It's about building academic excellence. But it's also just about being a good person. And, um, and there's just so many ways for us to explore. Um, even outside the four walls of our school, there's so many institutions across New York that our kids should be going to visit. And you will hear schools say, we don't have time to do that because we've got to prepare for the test. And so I think it has limited uh, what we can do, and I intend to push back on that very notion. I'm just going to stay on this for one more second before I let Jeff jump in here. But uh, you, you mentioned using a bully pulpit. Certainly, I mean, you have more than one million children in uh, New York City public schools. That's that's a lot of capital there. Just curious, in your perfect world, would you like to see New York City public schools opt out of requiring standardized tests from the SATs to I remember sitting for every Regents exam that they that they possibly gave, even a few, unfortunately, that I didn't know <laughs> didn't know existed, would you like to see New York City put its force and its weight behind rejecting those kinds of standardized tests completely? I, I, that's a great question. You know, I would like to see us put our force and our weight really um, closer to what I think the, the uh, consortium schools do, the performance-based assessment, where you get a chance to demonstrate um, the rigor of the academic experience that you've gone through 
um, by being by having to demonstrate it in other ways than just you know the multiple choice answers on a standardized exam. We, we've got a whole host of schools across the city and across the country um, who engage much more in uh, portfolio-based work and uh, real hands-on projects where you get a chance to really demonstrate the breadth of your knowledge about specific subjects. The challenge is that most of the exams that we take are really driven by the state. Schools are still representative of a, a state entities, and, and the state grapples with how do you take performance-based work and that for millions of children. It's not easy, but I think it is a place and space that we should be investing in and, do, and, and beginning this process of doing it differently. And again, it doesn't mean that I'm saying get rid of every standardized exam, but I would, I, would, I would tell you that if you ask most people who were successful, what do you remember most about your schooling? Almost no one will tell you how, what they did on a regents exam. Like that, that's, that's, that's not what you reflect on, right? You reflect on the teachers who made a real difference in your life, who inspired you to learn, who inspired you to read, who inspired you to overcome. You think about the special projects and learning experiences that you had in the fourth grade or the ninth grade or the, the theater program that you did when you were in high school. Nobody talks about the standardized exam that they took. No one. And so um, I... I I absolutely think that that is a place and space that we should be uh, looking for real and dramatic change. You know, and Chancellor, as you were speaking, I, I was having that thought, which is, you know what, you're right. I'm thinking of Mrs. Rupinski, my science teacher, and how much her class meant to me back in high school. So I'm glad you said that because it's true. I want to let our listeners know, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your co-host, Jeff Simmons, joined by Celeste Katz-Marston, and we're talking with New York City Schools Chancellor David Banks. I want to say, just move over to another topic. Uh, you know, crime in the city has been a significant concern uh, of uh, among New Yorkers, parents as well, students, everyone. We're just concerned about the state of crime. In the mayor's budget, he did mention, or it, it did come out in the last 24 hours, that there will be a cut to the overall number of hired, and I say hired because there are empty positions now, uh, of school safety agents, a position you once held. So how do you, with this potential cut overall over time, how do you assure parents and students and teachers that, and the principals, anyone in that school environment, that you're going to keep our schools safe? Well, you know, first of all, you remember, you know, I was a school safety uh, agent as well uh, many years ago. So I understand the value that school safety agents play in schools. Um, and I think in, in the larger public narrative, they've gotten a little bit of a, uh, a bad rap. Um, they're not, they're not, they're not cops in schools. They're not police in schools. In many schools, um, they are women. They are women of color, and they're just as important to the fabric of the school as the third grade uh, teacher or the eighth grade math teacher. They're, they're part of the family uh, environment of most of our schools. That, so that being said, there is a real challenge that we're facing. We're down probably over a thousand school safety officers um, from what we uh, used to have. And there's a, there's a class that's in, in the academy not right now that's being trained. But, again, it's, it's going to take us some time to, to get back to the numbers that we used to have because it takes about four to five months to train one set of officers. So that being said, I think it is very important to remember that 
the very idea of school safety is not just about how many school safety agents we have in our schools. It's, it's, a, it's about the relationships that our kids have with their teachers, the relationships that they have with their friends, and the kind of culture and environment that they go to school in. We've seen a rash of weapons that have been found recently as we've been coming off of this pandemic. And overwhelmingly, those weapons have not been um, weapons that have been used by the kids on other, uh, you know, on their friends in school. The, the kids have been afraid of what's going on in the community. That's what they've been reacting to. And they've been bringing weapons to kind of protect themselves outside of the four walls of the school. And so um, we've got a, 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 a huge body of work. The mayor um, and the police commissioner uh, are, are completely focused on how to reduce crime, how to reduce the spread and the proliferation of guns that are actually out here on our streets. Um, and my job is within the schools and working with young people to ensure their safety. Um, and, and in terms of doing that, some of the things we're looking at is, is there, are, there are lots of other community-based organizations um, who work with our kids in schools. So we want to we ratchet up that. We want to have more credible messengers uh, in our schools. Um, these are young people who are from the community, who know the community. They're not a school safety agent, but they know the community. They know the issues. They know the the points of real challenge, and we want to engage groups like that in our schools as well. So that's a that's a big place and space that we're going to be leaning in. And Chancellor, I know we only have a few minutes left. I want to squeeze in just another question, and I know Celeste has another question or two as well. Overcrowding, it's something we talked with Amy Zimmer about as well. Ever since I came to New York City and covered education for the Post and the Daily News, it was always a dominant issue. It still is an issue here in Queens where parents are concerned about overcrowding conditions. Um, this has never totally been eliminated. So how do you envision addressing issues of overcrowding during your tenure? Yeah, it's one of the really challenging issues in the city, right, because we're still looking at an economy which has not bounced all the way back. It impacts the overarching budget, which, in, which absolutely impacts our ability to create and open, you know, new schools. So the overcrowding issue is an issue that is really exists in, at the highest level in particular neighborhoods, particularly some neighborhoods around Queens where, I mean, they're operating at a two and three hundred percent capacity and so um uh, working with the school construction authority uh looking at opening of some new schools in addition to helping to expand the space in some of our existing schools critically important but beyond that i think we're going to have to get really innovative i don't have all the answers for you on these issues just yet i've only been here about a month or so and we're still figuring some of these things out um but i think we've got to get creative around how uh we schedule our kids in school, particularly at the high school level, um, where you don't necessarily have to have everybody in school all at the same time. Um, I'm, I'm very focused on figuring out ways to, uh, to make sure that our, our, our kids, um, you know, they don't all have to, to – I want to have a creative level of scheduling. Let me put it that way. Um, some kids may come to school earlier. Some kids will come to school later. This is another way to kind of uh, reduce the, um, you know, the, the overcrowding that exists in some of our schools. And we have to get more creative than that. So we're still working, still meeting with people to try to figure some of these things out. 
And just very quickly, Chancellor Banks, on that sort of tangentially related, there are some people who are very, very happy to have kids back in school, kids happy to be back in the classroom physically. Other people who are concerned that if we face another surge uh, with coronavirus, that there should be some sort of remote option or people who would like to have at least the possibility of remote option. Do you feel that that there's going to be room for that? Or what is your position on that right now? We are seeing rates go down, but that may not last. I think virtual learning is here to stay. And what I mean by that is our teachers and our students were thrust overnight into this this space. Um, And I think the really good upside to that is that our teachers, um, who may have been much more uncomfortable with the technology, um, were forced into that uh, space and and to increase their use uh, and expertise in, in that. And and I think that will ultimately inert to our benefit. So I think that um, there should be a remote option. I've been trying to work on that. We'll be making some announcements about it in the coming days. But a, a lot of um, people, when they say remote option, they were talking about very short-term responses because of the pandemic. I'm actually thinking about how do we create a virtual learning academy. There's some kids who really want to go to school virtually. Maybe they'll come after school to, to go play on a on a, on a team, a sports team, but during the day, uh, they did very well virtually. We want to be able to provide that opportunity for them. I want to create a virtual academy, which can be a lab, if you will, um, for us to, to learn the best practices to do this work virtually so that when the rest of the system, you know, if we, God forbid, have another variant that comes and we've got to close down for a period of time, that we're able to do it in a much more effective manner than, uh, than we were able to do it before. So, Lots of things we're looking at right now. We've been talking to some of the top technology companies around the, around the world um, and just looking at different ways. But think about this for a moment. Um, outside of a, quote-unquote, remote option, if you think about the fact that if you don't want our kids to be limited by what's going on within the four walls of the school, why can't our kids who are sitting at a school in Queens um, be exposed to a physics teacher who's on the other side of town. You can do that through the technology. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to be taught directly by the teacher who's in the classroom. Um, when Jeff Bezos went to outer space, how great would it be for our kids to have a conversation not only with him but with, these, with the scientists at NASA about what it takes to build a, a rocket ship and send it uh, into space? There's, there's so many ways for our kids to be engaged um, and to grow their minds and their thinking and their understanding about issues. And it doesn't have to be limited to just the one teacher that's in your room at any given time. The whole world can become your classroom through the use of technology. And that's how I'm seeing virtual learning more than just simply a quote-unquote remote option, but seeing it at a much grander scale that could have tremendous transformative impact on all of our kids. Chancellor David Banks, unfortunately, we are out of time. I really want to thank you so much for appearing here on WBAI with Celeste Katz-Marston and myself today. This has been a pleasure, and we'd love to have you back again sometime. Anytime. I appreciate it as well, and have a great, have a great evening. 
Thank you. Well, that was our conversation with New York City Schools Chancellor David Banks. I want to thank him so much for joining us here on Driving Forces today, as well as our first guest, Amy Zimmer of Chalkbeat. One brief programming note, I would like to let you know about this Sunday. Tune in at 10 a.m. for City Watch on WBAI. David Brand is going to be hosting. That's also live stream. David's going to talk with two new city council members. It's continuing our series. Julie Wan, who represents Sunnyside and Long Island City, one of the first two Korean Americans elected to the council. And then I'll talk with Bronx Council Member Piorina Anna Sanchez, chair of the Buildings Committee and a former official in the Obama White House. Thanks again to all our listeners. Thanks again to our engineer, Reggie. If you missed any part of this program, remember, we upload every edition of the show to SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, so you can subscribe. Never miss a program. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter and Facebook as well. Stay tuned for the evening news. Celeste Katz, Marston, and Jeff Simmons signing off here on Driving Forces. See you on the radio.